everyone. Welcome back to On Script. Thanks for listening and for sharing the word about what we're doing here. We're, we've been really excited over the last year to, to launch this project. And we've been thrilled with the, the uptake and the enthusiasm around it. And as much as you feel like it's worthy to share, please do. Uh, that's helpful to us. And I also appreciate the feedback that's been put on iTunes. I just wanted to highlight uh, some really nice comments we got in the site. Uh, someone wrote about how much you appreciate the hosts Mark and Mark. And uh, even though our names are actually Matt and Matt, given that we're a podcast on scripture, hence the name, we'll chalk that one up to a synoptic slip. Okay, I just wanted to give a heads up that we'll be moving our hosting platform in the coming weeks and I think it'll retain the same feed but if by some freak act of the internet we end up losing our current feed on to iTunes or the other providers that you use uh, can I just encourage you all to make sure that you've got the new feed fed into your feeds wherever you feed on podcasts um, I'll try not to screw things up but I'm not a web developer and uh, I just hope it goes smoothly. Um, you never know until you actually do it. But if any of you who listen out there want to help us out in the back end web stuff, that would be amazingly helpful. And we'd try to get you free books or something, candy, whatever we can. Or just, you know, the camaraderie of being part of this. But, you know, it's a season of giving. So if anyone wants to give some time that way, uh, if even just for the migration, that would be super helpful and very St. Nicholas-esque of you. Okay, today we have David Starling, hermeneutic, Hermeneutics as Apprenticeship, with Matt Bates hoping. No. <laughs> I can't talk. He's hoping. He's hoping to host. Matt Bates is hosting. Okay, here we go. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Although not without its detractors, it is a justly famous rule for sound biblical interpretation. About this rule and his controversy with the Catholic Church, Martin Luther says, Tell me, if you are able, by whose judgment is the question settled if the statement of the fathers are in conflict with, the, with one another? Scripture ought to deliver this judgment, which cannot be delivered unless we give to Scripture the principal place in all things, which is acknowledged by the fathers so that it might be, in and of itself, of all things, the most certain, the most simple, the most clear, interpreting itself, testing, judging, and illuminating all things. But what does it actually mean to let Scripture interpret Scripture? David Starling, who is with me today, has some helpful thoughts about this. Dave and I, David and I will be speaking about David's excellent new book, Hermeneutics as Apprenticeship. David, welcome to On Script. Thanks, Matthew. Well, David, I know you're in Sydney, uh, and that you've really uh, you've you've written this really excellent little book. But apart from that, I don't know much else. Uh, so I was just hoping that you would do a little bit to introduce yourself. Uh, tell me maybe a little bit about your teaching context, uh, about your scholarly context, uh, and uh, help me get to know you. Sure. Uh, well, once upon a time, I was a high school teacher. I taught English literature and uh, English language at high school. Uh, then I served for a, a time as a, a Baptist pastor in an inner city. Baptist Church uh, here in Sydney. Uh, that was for about six or seven years. 
And then after that, since then, I've been uh, teaching here in a Baptist uh, college and seminary called Mauling College here in Sydney. Um, the majority of our students are headed towards some kind of form of vocational Christian service, uh, frequently as, as pastors, and uh, we're engaged in forming them, uh, uh, in uh, all of our students, uh, forming them in the knowledge of God in the, in the scriptures, uh, and uh, amongst many of our students, forming them for a vocation of uh, interpreting and teaching the scriptures in the church. So that's, that's the context in which I'm teaching. So the book uh, really arises uh, out of that context and that uh, my sense of the, the importance of that task. Yeah, thank you, David. Now, you're, you're teaching in Sydney and, uh, and forming people there. Uh, what is, what's the spiritual climate like there now, and uh, to what degree does that, uh, did that affect this book as you were writing it? Yeah, Sydney, um, of all the Australian cities, I think is the most global. Uh, it's also uh, the most obviously uh, post-Christian in the, the broader cultural context, I think. Uh, uh, the churches in Sydney uh, include a, a fairly vigorous uh, evangelical presence, uh, but also a, a somewhat um, polarised and, uh, and fragmented evangelicalism in, in Sydney, I think. Um, there's uh, a, a deep sense that we're, uh, we're seeking to live in obedience to Scripture in a context where uh, that's a, a challenging task uh, for us. Uh, the, the business of hermeneutics is, is uh, important and, and difficult work for us, and... Uh, uh, yeah, I think there's a there's a deep need for for, for wisdom and for charity and for uh, clarity in our apprehension of scripture in a place like like Sydney. I mean, it's not uniquely a Sydney question at all. And uh, as I said earlier, we're we're probably the most self consciously global of Australia's cities. So uh, a lot washes up onto our shores from North America and from uh, East Asia and uh, and and the rest of the world. Uh, so we I think what when, uh, when the rest of the uh, the world sneezes, we catch a cold, and vice versa. So, what's what's true of of your context in in uh, North America? It's probably uh, frequently uh, something similar is true uh, where I am here in Sydney. So, your book then specifically seems like it's addressing hermeneutical needs that are practical for the church today, uh, as uh, like you said, uh, as the scripture is increasingly under attack, or at least it's authoritative dimension, uh, we do need wisdom, and your book is about how to be apprenticed uh, by scripture, so uh, I appreciated it a lot, and I think that uh, our listeners will too. Now, David, you open your book with a simple passage uh, from the Bible, from Leviticus 19.18, or at least it would seem simple on the surface, uh, and uh, uh, that passage famously, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you, you show that even, even a seemingly straightforward passage like that is fraught with all kinds of hermeneutical challenges, uh, and it raises a whole plethora of questions that uh, are perhaps difficult for us to answer. Um, what are some of those questions as a way of kind of framing um, the kinds of issues that, uh, that rise to the surface for us as interpreters? Yeah, well, as I say in the first chapter, there's a, there's a whole string of them, isn't there? So you can go word by word through the, the sentence itself and ask questions about the you uh, whom the commandment is addressed to. Uh, is, it, is it addressed uh, to, the, to, to every member of the, the Israelite community gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai? Uh, is it uh, addressed 
even more particularly to the adult male um, householders within the nation of Israel, um, whose situation seems to be presupposed by many of the other commandments in the, the, the surrounding verses of the chapter, uh, is it addressed uh, and is it to be heard as addressed to all subsequent generations of, of Israelites? Uh, is it uh, by some valid mode of extension to be heard as addressed to, to Christian readers of Scripture uh, in our situation? Uh, so you could ask about the you. Um, uh, you could ask, it, it might seem silly, but you could ask about the shall because both in the English of our translations and in the original Hebrew, uh, there's no grammatical reason uh, why we would take it as an imperative rather than as a, a kind of future indicative, um, you know, a prediction that you will. Now, I think there's valid uh, uh, valid and obvious kind of contextual reasons uh, uh, why you'd take that you shall love as, as a commandment to love rather than a prediction, but that that's a question that needs to be at, at, at one level addressed in interpreting it. Uh, then, of course, there's the word love um, uh, is the commandment uh, urging us to a particular pattern of action? Is it urging us to a particular um, affective stance toward our neighbour, some sort of emo- emotional response to uh, our neighbour? Uh, is it is it both? Um, and what does the word love mean? What kind of love, uh, what kind of disposition or affection or action are we speaking of here? Um, I don't think that's self-evident. Um, your neighbour, uh, I mean, that's the, that's the, the word which was most famously problematized in that conversation uh, that Jesus uh, is recorded as having in the Gospels, uh, who is my neighbor, um, and in the conditions of globalization, uh, for example, of our own context, uh, there's a whole set of additional questions about proximity and neighborhood, um, whether there's any legitimate way in which the concept of neighbor can be uh, bounded and defined, or whether that's an evasive attempt to escape from the force of the commandment. Uh, then there's the as. Um, are we, does the commandment prescribe uh, neighbor love of the same kind as self-love? Uh, does it presuppose self-love? Does it command that you love yourself as well? Is it uh, that you love your neighbor to the same degree as you love yourself? Is it simply saying, we know you love yourself, um, also love your neighbor? Um, so there's a, there's a whole string of questions you could ask about the the meanings of the words that are strung together in the sentence. Uh, and then there are additional questions too, uh, what the Speech Act theorists would refer to as the uh, the illocutionary and the perlocutionary force uh, of the utterance in the commandment. Um, what is the, in the kind of act that the command is uh, seeking to perform and what kind of effect is the command seeking to uh, evoke in its hearers. Uh, so is this a command which is intended as uh, an act of teaching? Is the giving of the commandment uh, intended uh, by Moses, by the editor of the, the, you know, the final form of Leviticus, uh, by God himself, uh, to be laying down legislation uh, that creates rights and duties for Israelites? Um, is this a command that seeks to educate the, the heart and the conscience of Israelite hearers? Uh, and is the effect that the, the command is aimed at achieving um, uh, an unproblematic, instantaneous, spontaneous, joyful, easy obedience? Is it aimed at producing uh, tears and contrition and a sense of 
um, reliance on the grace of God? Is it, is it aiming at a, a wounded conscience or an educated conscience or both of the above? Uh, a whole, whole string of questions, in other words, that arise uh, to do with both the meanings of the words and the intended force of the commandment. Uh, and then as I, as I uh, foreshadowed a moment earlier, a bunch of extra commandments that arise out of our situation as 21st century Christian readers of the commandment about whether and in what ways a commandment that Leviticus records uh, Moses speaking to Israel at Mount Sinai has for uh, Christian 21st century readers today. So uh, all of those questions, of course, um, uh, many of those questions can be answered fairly easily and, and readily. Uh, the, the fact that they exist doesn't mean that the commandment is incoherent or uh, impossible to be understood, uh, but it's a reminder of how much interpreting is going on whenever we're reading scripture, I think, even as you say, in a relatively familiar, relatively uh, seemingly simple uh, part of the scripture uh, like that commandment. Well, thanks, David. That's that's quite impressive to, to, to think through with you all the different ways one can construe something that seems on the surface so simple. And in light of that, you know, um, I think that uh, the reaction that some or maybe even all of us might have is maybe just a counsel of despair, right? That, that if interpretation is so, is so hard, uh, well, then uh, how can we possibly even hope to move forward? And um, and so uh, I think that uh, one of the things that your book is doing here uh, is trying to help us move forward, and, and maybe this is a good place then for you to uh, to kind of lay out for us a little bit uh, your vision of uh, of hermeneutics as a apprenticeship. Uh, what do you mean by that, and uh, what are you hoping that to achieve in your book here? Yeah, um, what I'm hoping for is uh, uh, an increase and a, and, a, and a deepening of of wisdom. I think. Uh, in a lot of the hermeneutics texts and hermeneutics classes that I've observed, uh, much of the frequently the assumption seems to be that um, all we need is rule or technique or theory, uh, and if we're sufficiently armed with uh, a theory, a, a grand theory, or with uh, an arsenal of techniques, and, and we come to scripture, uh, if we follow the techniques and we uh, apply the theory will uh, come up with some kind of hermeneutical salvation. Uh, I think that is both overly optimistic and overly, overly pessimistic. It's overly optimistic about the power of theory and technique uh, to a- achieve um, objectivity and truth. Uh, and I think it's uh, overly pessimistic about the, the richness of the resources that we already have in Scripture. Uh, so I think that kind of modernistic approach to scripture uh, implicitly treats scripture as the the passive object of our interpretive endeavors uh, lying inert before us, waiting for us to bring hermeneutics, as it were, to the text. Uh, It underplays the extent to which scripture is uh, both in the dynamics of its divine authorship and illumination uh, through the work of the Spirit, uh, and in terms of the uh, the plural human authorship and the either texture dynamics within the canon, the extent to which scripture itself is rich with interpretations, that uh, we don't just come to scripture bringing interpretation with us, we 
uh, we receive scripture as scripture approaches us. Uh, scripture, as it were, um, moves toward us across the whole uh, history of the mission of God and the formation of the canon. Uh, through salvation history, his, scripture is approaching us and the biblical writers themselves are engaged in endless uh, interpretive work uh, as scripture itself interprets scripture, as as uh, Moses speaking in Deuteronomy interprets the commandments of Exodus and Leviticus, as uh, Boaz and Ruth interpret the law in the book of Ruth, as the Psalms create a liturgical and community framework for meditating on and receiving and delighting in and obeying and remembering the law of God, uh, as the Lord Jesus uh, opens up the scriptures uh, with the uh, the disciples uh, after his resurrection and 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 on we go. Uh, scripture is a self-interpreting book, alive with the in, the self-interpreting work of uh, the Spirit interpreting the mind of God to the people of God. Uh, I think then the the apprenticeship model is a way of speaking both about the kind of uh, wisdom for interpretive practices that we're aiming at. We're not aiming at a an abstract theory but the kind of wisdom that emerges out of attentiveness to the particulars of Scripture and is for the sake of the practices of uh, reading and meditating on and obeying and delighting in and teaching the Scripture. Uh, and it speaks of the method by which one of the crucial methods, at least, or the, the, the chief method by which we are to get that kind of hermeneutical wisdom, which is a, a metaphorical apprenticeship to the interpretive practices that we find within the canon. Uh, I, I steal the line, the, that image of the apprentice from uh, Kevin Van Hooser, among others, who himself is adapting it, of course, from um, McIntyre and so on, and uh, uh, attempt in the book to uh, undertake a, a, whole, a whole string of case studies in apprenticeship, watching the biblical interpreters at work, uh, watching the writers of Scripture as they... Uh, interpret, appropriate, recontextualize, apply uh, what was scripture for them, um, antecedent scripture, and uh, seeking to observe the patterns of judgment, the interpretive wisdom that informs their use of scripture so that we might learn something for our own hermeneutical task. That's the gist of what I'm aiming at. Yeah, I appreciate that, and um, I, I think that um, one of the things that uh, your book is really savvy in doing is the scripture. Let scripture interpret scripture principle that uh, that, that I, I read the quote from. You know, from Luther at the beginning uh, that was actually obviously drawn from your page nine. Um, but uh, I think that one of the problems is sometimes this gets uh, particularized uh, so that it's just like let the you know the uh, difficult passage be interpreted by the easier passage, and so it's all about a, a playoff of uh, you know one passage being used to interpret another passage, and that's what let scripture interpret scripture means. But here you're taking such a broad, expansive view of this uh, in terms of this apprenticeship uh, model, and I think it's very very helpful. I thought one of the, th the the parts, I guess, of your book that grabbed me most. I thought you had this really delightful metaphor uh, that uh, uh, is your attempt, I suppose, to supplement uh, the uh, that other famous metaphor of hermeneutics, the hermeneutical circle or spiral. Uh, you had a different metaphor, a metaphor of a snowball, uh, and uh, I thought it was both amusing and helpful. And so, uh, I would love it if you wanted to expand on what you meant by that metaphor of the snowball uh, for our audience. 
Yeah, yeah, the snowball metaphor. It almost became the title of the book, but uh, wiser counsels prevailed. Um, uh, what I have in mind there, of course, is to start with the, the more familiar and traditional metaphors, um, hermeneutics as, as circle or spiral. Um, anyone who's, who's read anything about hermeneutics you know, will bump up against those metaphors uh, in almost every author, and they're quite richly informative and helpful, I think. That is, there's a kind of circle that operates, um, as, as Schleiermacher says, between our uh, apprehension of the whole and our analysis of the parts whenever, whenever we're interpreting anything, or as, as, as Gadamer uh, reapplies the metaphor between our pre-understandings that we, of the world and of the text that we bring to the text and the deliverances of our, our encounter with the text. Uh, some, some writers wanted to put a, a slightly more optimistic frame on the, on the idea and to guard against the notion that uh, the circle might be a, a kind of a vicious circle, um, what a, uh, uh, modify that to become a kind of spiral for our, um, hopefully, our advance, uh, our spiraling advance toward understanding of the text um, as we as we read. Um, uh, what I want to say in the, the, the book is that those metaphors, helpful as they are, um, can be uh, usefully supplemented um, by uh, the metaphor of of uh, the text itself approaching us, as I said earlier, uh, rolling as it were like a like a snowball down the down the the incline of salvation history, uh, uh, wrapping layers of self interpretation around itself as each new uh, writer of the scriptures. Uh, uh, appropriates, applies, extends uh, the the previous uh, revelation of God in in their particular context, uh, and uh, and that Scripture then um, is is approaching us and approaching us uh, thick with self interpretation. Sometimes I think we speak about Scripture as the text um, in these hermeneutical. Um, um, analyses and you know, the textbooks that we write. We speak about scripture as the text, as if it were some sort of abstract singularity. Uh, and even where there's a, there's a very high notion of scripture's perfections and authority, we speak about the perfection of scripture as if it were a, a kind of single beautiful snowflake um, descending from heaven and then somehow uh, kept frozen and, uh, and peered at through the, the microscopes of our an- analytical method um, Whereas scripture, really, the unity of scripture is a, is a heavy, uh, complex, multi-layered unity, more like, as I say, the snowball than the snowflake. Um, uh, now, of course, the metaphor has its limits. So I, um, I confess, of course, uh, in the in the introduction to the book, that uh, it, it runs out of usefulness. I think, um, or at least it raises a a, a set of more complex questions uh, at the boundary line between canonical and uh, post-canonical history um, of the, the mission of God in the world. Um, what do we do with the, the reception history of Scripture, the patristic interpretation of the medieval and the Reformation and the post-Reformation um, developments in our interpretation of Scripture? Uh, I think the line between – the line that's delineated at the edge of the canon um, – uh, is best preserved rather than see the hill um, of layers of continuing interpret- interpretive tradition accumulating and accumulating and accumulating 
through the fathers and, and beyond. Uh, I think if I were to keep the, the, the metaphorical snowball rolling down the hill forever all the way to us, that would, I think, um, obscure the significance of that the line that's drawn um, with the formation and the closure of the canon. Um, uh, alternatively, you know, we, you could you could mangle the metaphor completely and talk about that reception history uh, and its contribution to our understanding as a history in which the the received snowball, as it were, of canonical history is is somehow picked up and patted down and uh, thrown and caught and thrown and caught. Um, of course, the kind of snowballs you pick up and throw around are different from the, the snowballs that roll down hills. So the metaphor at that point becomes uh, a little bit silly, really. Um, so I, what I suggest in the introduction is that we're best off really uh, letting the metaphor um, speak of the uh, uh, just of the uh, scripture itself and its own self-interpretation and think of other metaphors for uh, the resource model of, of modern interpretation via, you know, pre-modern, um, patristic and medieval and uh, early modern interpreters of scripture. Um, but that's, that's the idea. Um, receiving scripture not as a single fragile snowflake that descended from heaven yesterday, uh, but receiving scripture as, as, uh, as it was given to us, um, as a, as a, a a collection of writings that um, uh, accumulated in a, in a whole big, single but complex tradition of of self interpretation across across the centuries of of uh, salvation history, culminating in the Christ event and the uh, the books that that generated in the New Testament. Yeah, thanks, David. I, I wonder if, um, you know, thinking about this uh, snowball rolling through church history, uh, as uh, church history can become a mixed bag of both heroes and villains, uh, maybe one should think of uh, the snowball as picking up a little debris. You know, you've got a stick and a rock here uh, along the way uh, that get mixed in with the snow or something along those lines. But you're probably right. It's probably best at some point just to uh, realize uh, all metaphors have their limitations. Otherwise, you know, you're going to have some people asking you some awkward questions, David, uh, like, what are you trying to say? Are you trying to say that our scriptures are going to melt, uh, or uh, <laughs> yeah, that's you know, right. uh, uh, or other things like that? Uh, so, um, okay. Well, jumping into uh, uh, your first chapter, then uh, you chose to write on the Psalter first, even though canonically it's not first. Uh, uh, oftentimes, uh, what we choose first reflects some sort of prioritization. Uh, is that true uh, in the case of the Psalter? And if so, uh, what were you hope? What do you think that we need to be? Um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, of this metaphor of apprenticeship, uh, how how do we need to be apprenticed by the Psalter? Yeah, I started with this. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about where I'd start. Um, started with the Psalter in the end uh, because what was pressing on my mind were questions to do with uh, the relationship between the Scripture and the Church, uh, and the questions uh, going back to your, your very first question about our, our context in a place like Sydney or uh, Chicago. Uh, our context in a in a, in a post Christendom church, where the kind of assumptions we have about Scripture are by no means able to be held as self evident uh, culturally anymore, uh, they're fiercely contested assumptions. Uh, it seems to me that a that a, a Christian and evangelical uh, doctrine of Scripture uh, needs to be held and sustained not only at the level of uh, doctrinal affirmation, but also at the level of, of 
uh, affection and disposition and practice and habit. Um, in other words, it seems to me that our doctrine of the doctrine of scripture uh, needs uh, the church just as the church needs a doctrine of scripture um, or to steal a line from Stanley Howas is not so much that the church has a doctrine of scripture um, as that the church is a doctrine of scripture. So I think uh, given the fact that ever more intensely these days, the kinds of um, practices of biblical piety need to be learned and trained. Uh, our affections need to be uh, taught and illumined and, and set fire to um, just as much as or more than perhaps, or certainly as much as our, our intellect needs to be persuaded uh, of, of certain truths about the, uh, the nature and authority of Scripture. Because that's the case, I thought I'd turn to the Psalms as the most obvious place where uh, within the Scripture you have the kind of scriptural resources for the, the forming of biblical affections, for the, 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 the shaping of the, uh, the hearts and the, the, the practices of Israel in the reception of the law of God and the, and the word of God. When you, when you go back to the uh, traditional doctrinal accounts of the nature and perfections and authority of scripture, what you find very often is that it's, it's the, the Torah Psalm, Psalm 19, Psalm 119 and so on, Psalm 1, that are uh, drawn upon in the framing of those um, those, those traditional um, modern evangelical statements about the perfections and the authority of Scripture. Uh, so it seemed to me good to to go back to the root of those kinds of affirmations uh, and to uh, do some meditating in the Psalms on uh, how the Psalms train us to uh, to receive. Um, the words of scripture and how to perceive what scripture is and how to receive what scripture does. Uh, that, that, that's, I was quite happy with, with, uh, what I learned through that process actually and, uh, uh, emerged, uh, really strengthened in my conviction that a doctrine of scripture needs not only to be articulated and defined and defended, uh, but also to be prayed and sung and, and and practiced if it's to be a, a living doctrine of Scripture and not a kind of a fossilized theoretical doctrine of Scripture. It seems to me that there's a lot of, uh, I, I can speak for the evangelical tradition that I'm part of, uh, within evangelicalism there's uh, a lot of churches I encounter where on paper there's a very, very high uh, set of statements made in theory about scripture, a very high theoretical doctrine of scripture, but a very low devotion to scripture, a very thin set of practices by which believers uh, feed on scripture and very, uh, very thin set of liturgical practices in which scripture is read and heard in the, in the church. Uh, so whereas in paper, um, we say very high, very grand things about the truth and power of scripture, uh, in practice, as I say in the book, it's kind of like the, the, the Cheshire cat. The, the body, as it were, of our doctrine of scripture is fading away. All we have left, it seems, in many quarters of modern evangelicalism is the, is the, the grin. Uh, so I think, I think the Psalms, uh, and not just the Psalms studied and taught, but the Psalms, uh, prayed and, 
uh, memorized and meditated upon and sung uh, together and alone. The Psalms are a beautiful place uh, within Scripture for us to, to relearn uh, those dispositions and practices that we need if we either have a, a living doctrine of Scripture in the, in the 21st century church. Yeah, I agree, and I think that we Protestants probably have a lot to learn from the Catholic tradition. One of the benefits that I have in my current context is, as a Protestant, I teach at a Catholic institution, Franciscan, um, and I pray the morning office with some of my colleagues here. Uh, and mm. there's something about the, you know, kind of the, it's mostly praying through Psalms. I mean, in general, I mean, there's passages from the prophets and, uh, and whatnot, but a lot of it is, uh, is from the Psalter. And you're right, it's very formative. Uh, and, uh, I do wonder if, uh, if that's something that was lost, you know, in the Reformation is, is mm. that sort of contact with, uh, that, that, the divine office uh, that was so foundational for rooting uh, the Psalter in the daily fabric of life. Um, uh, that what you're saying certainly resonates with me. Another thought that I have is just sort of a follow-up there. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the book by Ronald Heine. Uh, but I think it's called something along the lines of reading the Old Testament with the ancient church or with the early church. Um, but uh, he speaks uh, about uh, uh, how the early fathers read uh, the Psalter as medicine for the soul. And uh, this is a, a sort of a metaphor that whatever uh, whatever season of life you happen to be in or particular life circumstance, uh, that something in the Psalter is designed by God to sort of speak uh, and to provide a balm uh, for the soul uh, at the right time. Uh, and there's something very formative about uh, that in terms of uh, the living fabric of life, uh, that contact with the Psalter. Um, let, me, let me move us on to another question, though. Um, just as I want to give a, give a, a chance to uh, to do justice to something of the riches of your book, uh, I, I'm going to pass my question on your second chapter, which was on Deuteronomy, which is a, an excellent chapter. But uh, chapter three on Ruth uh, certainly grabbed my attention as you you, you kind of press the the metaphor of what it means to be a reader uh, 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 considerably as you as you want to talk about um, sort of the the characters in the story and the way that they embody. Uh, a, a certain kind of presumed reading, yeah. right, uh, and uh, embody certain kinds of virtues. Uh, that was fascinating to me. I thought it was an excellent discussion. Um, and so uh, what kind of reader, then, uh, of Scripture are we encouraged to be on the basis of, of the actions that we see embodied, embodied in characters like Ruth and or Boaz? Yeah, certainly, um, certainly uh, narratives like the book of Ruth um, presuppose that that I think our, that our reading of Scripture is not a, uh, a disinterested uh, reading or a, a merely theoretical encounter with, with Scripture to accumulate truths, uh, because Boaz and Naomi and Ruth, they're all encountering uh, the law of God and the story of God's salvation uh, in the context of um, the forming of habits and patterns of life and uh, instincts of, of interaction and, and the shaping of character and the making of, of decisions. Um, what I love about the story of Ruth is the way in which uh, Scripture, uh, in, in the form of the, 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 uh, the mosaic and, and, and customary um, laws and traditions of Israel and Scripture in the form of the recollected story of the, the saving kindness of God and the creedal affirmation of Israel about the uh, the mercy and truth of Yahweh. Uh, scripture uh, speaks to the different situations and different angles of approach with which it's encountered by 
Boaz, on the one hand, uh, reading scripture uh, as it as it were, I mean, re- you know, hearing and remembering, recalling the stuff which is the content of what, what, it, what scripture is for us, encountering the commandments of Moses, for example, um, from a position of virtuous fullness as uh, an Israelite in, in living in the land, uh, as a landowner, um, as a an, uh, as a as a, um, a a man of, of substance and virtue, uh, he's he's encountering scripture um, to be educated in his responsibilities, taught about who to love and and whom to love and how to love. He's learned being shaped in the the traditions of the law of Moses in how to care for the foreigner and the alien, how to leave the margins of his field to be gleaned, and so on. Uh, so he's encountering scripture from that standpoint, asking questions about uh, the love of neighbor and of stranger. Uh, Naomi and Ruth are coming to the scripture uh, and to the story of Yahweh's uh, salvation and uh, the traditions of his, his mercy and his kindness and his steadfast love and covenant faithfulness uh, coming, in Naomi's case, coming back, or Ruth's case, coming from the outside. Uh, empty of resources and looking to to find grace and mercy and and, and shelter under the wings of the Lord, uh, and those two readings converge, uh, and Boaz recognizes in Ruth a source of of, of kindness that uh, he's experienced, and uh, there's a there's a really lovely kind of interplay between their their disparate situations from, from which they encounter scripture and their stories get, get woven together and deep understanding of the purposes of God and the character of God emerges that guides their conduct as the story goes on. It creates, in Barry Webb's, Barry Webb's language, a, a radical and, and, and beautiful kindness uh, that emerges shaped by um, the law of Moses and the, the story of God's salvation and the uh, the revelation of his character in that. Uh, out of that emerges a radif- radical and controversial uh, kindness uh, that is, in the end, uh, a deeply true uh, living of the the, the, uh, the the Word of God. So, yes, I think Ruth reminds us that the kind of reading of Scripture that we're called to is a lived reading and an inactive reading, uh, and that we read Scripture together, uh, not in the... Uh, academic dispassionate isolation of the study alone, um, but we read scripture in the uh, lived experience of uh, our lives and we read scripture together communally and we read scripture in ways that are challenged and enriched by the people whom God brings into our lives, uh, the outsiders as well as the insiders, the empty as well as the full, uh, and together by the kindness of God, understanding and wisdom and, and love emerge in our encounter with scripture. Yeah, I agree. I love the book of Ruth too, but I also feel like the hermeneutical model that you were bringing was particularly fruitful, you know, and a new way to kind of think about, um, uh, kind of getting into uh, a certain character and seeing on the basis of their actions, 
what we can presuppose about what kind of readers they are of Scripture. It would be interesting to uh, to do that kind of project for Jesus, not looking at uh, necessarily his exegetical techniques, uh, but what sort of you know a, a lived obedience do we see as a, a sort of a response to Scripture, and then and then moving on to our own lives, right, and uh, uh, being able to use that as a, a springboard for assessing uh, what kind of a, a virtuous reader of Scripture am I in terms of my lived obedience. Uh, very helpful, I think. So. Um, let's uh, let's jump to your chapter on prophecy, um, uh, and one of the reasons that I wanted to, to jump there is I think that uh, there's always been a fascination with prophecy. I'm fascinated with prophecy. I, I think that uh, 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 there's something that's attention-grabbing about these books in the Bible, but they also pose special hermeneutical challenges for us as readers, and so we need to be interpre- we need to be um, uh, uh, discipled. Uh, by uh, these books, too, in terms of how to become a better reader of Scripture. Um, so what do, what do the prophetic books have to offer for us here? And you focus especially on uh, the prophet Zechariah. Yeah, I'm, one of my colleagues, Anthony Pedersen here at Morling, is a Zechariah scholar, and uh, he's, he's one of the ones who sort of stimulated and provoked me to um, overcome my uh, uh, sense of trepidation and... Uh, and jump into Zechariah and try and understand uh, that part of the scripture, which, to be honest, I've spent much of my life not really, uh, um, uh, you know, I've a fair bit of Zechariah avoidance in my, my previous history. Uh, but what I was interested in Zechariah is at, at the toward the, the back end of the Old Testament canon, um, what you have in Zechariah is both a, it's a, obviously a book of prophecy with an interesting composition history in which you can you can observe. Something of the what it means for the collator of the book of Zechariah to receive the oracles of Zechariah the prophet of Scripture, but it's also in those oracles themselves Zechariah is um, interpreting and appropriating and re-promulgating the the previous words of prophecy from from Jeremiah and uh, and in Jeremiah's case Jeremiah is, is reminding Israel. Uh, himself of, of what the prophets have already been saying. Uh, so what you get in, in Zechariah is, is quite a, quite an illuminating case study, I think, and what it means for prophecy to be received as scripture. Um, it's, it's ironic that very often in our, um, evangelical Protestant formulations of the doctrine of scripture, we reach for the, the parody of, uh, the par- parody, the, uh, the paradigm, I should say, of, uh, of prophecy, uh, as, the, the dominant model that we um, uh, think of Scripture in, but we give very little attention, actually, to the question of of what it means for uh, prophecy, which is, you know, in its origins, uh, uh, an orally delivered oracle um, preached to a particular situation at a particular moment in the history of the people of God, uh, for prophecy to become scripture and to be received as scripture and uh, for prophecy to be uh, appropriated, collected, uh, written down. And uh, we give surprisingly little attention, I think, to the question of the uh, the afterlife, if you, if, if you will, of a prophecy. What happens um, to the force and the truth and the uh, effect of a prophecy after it's been preached and heard, and and in the case of predictive prophecy, 
uh, after it's either uh, come to fulfillment and Israel's come home from exile or the foundation of the, the, the new temple has been laid or uh, whatever the particular uh, moment is of prophecy's fulfillment, either after it's fulfilled, then you ask, well, what, what's the continuing use of it once the, the fulfillment's come true, or after the centuries have dragged on and it hasn't come true yet, at what point does prophecy, does, does it have a use-by date? Do you, do you say, well, you know, it looks like this wasn't a true prophet after all because the thing he said hasn't come to pass. How long do you give it the benefit of the doubt? Uh, now, these might seem distant questions for us and Old Testament-ish kind of questions, uh, but they're actually questions of deep moment, uh, deep significance for, for Christians too, I think. Uh, because Jesus came proclaiming the, uh, the nearness of the kingdom of God and, uh, proclaiming the, the, the coming of the Son of Man. Um, and, and we, in a sense, um, live our lives suspended between, uh, the great affirmation of Jesus as the one who, uh, spoke, uh, truly, um, in his resurrection and, uh, and the, the, the coming future when the, the, the world is transformed in line with the, the vision of the coming kingdom that Jesus spoke about. So we ourselves are in a situation not that dissimilar, actually, to the situation of, say, Zechariah's readers, to whom he says, um, more than once, uh, then you will know, uh, then you will know, in other words, that, yeah, you know, that, that the Lord has spoken through Zechariah. So those kind of questions, both the, the epistemological and political risk that's involved in betting on the truth of a prophet, as we have indeed placed our bets on Jesus as Christians, uh, and the uh, the transformations and developments uh, that the meaning and and force of prophecy have um, as it's received and remembered, and, and prophecy becomes traditioned and remembered prophecy in Scripture. That's the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. The Zechariah. Uh, chapter. Um, of course, as you say, there's all kinds of um, recourse that the contemporary Christians, at, at you know, in, in popular level publications and in sermons and so on, have to um, prophecy, predictive prophecy, uh, Old Testament and, and New Testament apocalyptic texts as well, uh, where we read prophecy as biblical prophecy as a whole kind of what's the word? A chocolate box of predictions that we we pick and choose from and. Uh, whereas I think Zechariah reads the prophetic tradition not so much as a disparate collection of, you know, fortune cookie predictions, uh, not like that, but as a, an accumulating, re-echoing tradition of um, a word from the Lord that's said and said again and said again and said again, um, accumulating force and power within the history of Israel. It's a, it's a very different way of perceiving prophecy, I think. All right, I'm going to move you then uh, to a discussion of um, gospel-centered hermeneutics. You knew this question uh, and this topic was eventually going to come come about in your book, but it, it took a while for you to get there. You waited until the chapter on Luke to discuss a gospel-centered hermeneutic. Now, this is something that uh, quite obviously uh, is important to a lot of people today, gospel-centered hermeneutics. You embrace it, I think, at least to a degree, um, but you qualify that. Uh, how would you qualify that? Yeah, absolutely. As you say, I do embrace it, uh, and uh, enthusiastically so. I want to say that uh, at the centre of the canon, at the climax of salvation history, is the figure of the Lord Jesus, uh, the risen Jesus, 
um, breaking bread with his disciples and opening the scriptures uh, so that in all the scriptures they might understand the necessity of his death and resurrection and the, the, the preaching of forgiveness and repentance uh, in his name to the nations. Uh, that, that has to be, I think, uh, for us as Christian readers of scripture, the, uh, the center of our encounter with, with the scriptures uh, in their testimony to the Lord Jesus himself in his, his uh, saving work and his death and resurrection. Um, having said that, though, um, I do want to, uh, in that chapter, um, qualify or, or clarify what we mean by a gospel-centered hermeneutic in, uh, in several ways. Um, in the first place, I want to say that um, just as... Um, the, the gospel shapes our understanding of the Old Testament, so also, uh, were it not for the Old Testament, we'd, we'd have no frame in which to, to understand and make sense of the gospel. Uh, so we read the scripture not only um, backwards, as it were, from the gospel, but also forwards toward the gospel. And uh, that helps us, among other things, to avoid the trap of um, unilaterally imposing upon scripture, scripture in general and in the Old Testament perhaps especially unilaterally imposing on Scripture uh, an incorrigible formulation that we've inherited from whether from the, the 16th century or the uh, the confessions of the 17th or the um, revivalist preaching of the, of the 19th or of our own context, imposing what we think the gospel is, the received understanding in our community of what we say gospel means, imposing that on Scripture, rather than learning and relearning what the gospel is uh, from Scripture itself. That's the first thing I want to say. Um, a gospel-centered hermeneutic must be one which allows uh, our understanding of Scripture to keep on shaping and testing and reforming our understanding of the gospel um, uh, at the same time as our understanding of the gospel um, is the center of our encounter with Scripture. The other thing I want to say is um, in that chapter that we ought to beware of overly sharp attempts to um, pair off, uh, to slice off from the gospel and therefore from how we hear um, the whole of the scriptures, um, attempts to, to, to pair off the, uh, the exhorting and the uh, promising and the commanding uh, dimensions of the Gospel Speech Act from the propositional content of what it announces. Uh, there's a deep truth, of course, in the, the the standard line about the gospel being good news, not just good advice. Um, at, you know that you hear it at a popular level, and I think there's there's uh, as I say, deep truth in that that the scripture, before anything else, is the declaration of what God has done in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But gospel language is also used in in Old Testament and New for a form of speech that, in announcing that, is also um, promising, commanding, exhorting, summoning us to a particular pattern of life um, in the Lord Jesus and in response to the Lord Jesus. Uh, sometimes I think the slogan of a gospel-centered hermeneutic can be used as a kind of can function as a kind of sieve or a strainer that that strains out matters of of, of justice and righteousness and lived uh, spiritual experience out of the Old Testament and New Testament narratives and, and the whole of the scripture, um, so that all emerges is a, is a kind of a clear, abstract broth of um, Christological or Christocentric kind of gospel doctrine, 
Um, uh, and the gospel then is only ever preached on that account if it's preached uh, in the indicative mood, uh, conveying propositional content about the atonement and the resurrection and so on. Uh, I, it seems to me that the gospel simultaneously announces Jesus as Saviour and Lord and in doing so summons us in repentance and faith to a, to a, to a pattern of life and, and extends promises to us of, of grace and justification. Uh, I think honouring that conjunction is, is really important in giving a, a proper account of what a gospel-centred hermeneutic might mean. Yeah, I think that's well put. So it, it seems like then you want to, on the one hand, affirm a, a certain kind of dialectic between, um, you know, al- allowing uh, the Jesus story to kind of move back toward the Old Testament and us to see new things there, but not in a Marcionite sort of way that it just overrides the Old Testament. The Old Testament must inform forward uh, our reading, and so that sort of dialectic must be preserved. And then on the other hand, uh, you know, um, I think you've spoken eloquently about the transformative power of the gospel, and that we can't lose sight of that, both for ourselves and for the world. We don't want to sort of let those things get filtered out. Um, you, uh, uh, in your, in your, ten, I guess maybe it's your eleventh chapter. Then uh, you, you sort of really uh, uh, leap uh, right into the midst of a controversial uh, passage. Uh, uh, this passage on allegory uh, in Galatians, and uh, I commend you for uh, for being willing to, you know, uh, try to to tackle the beast there. Um, so here is my question: Why is it crucial, do you think, for Christians to know something about Greco-Roman rhetorical conventions? Uh, as they seek to become apprenticed as scriptural interpreters by Paul, particularly in this this moment where Paul employs, uh, or does he, uh, this allegorical method. I wouldn't want to overstate the extent to which uh, Greco-Roman rhetorical convention and theory um, are necessary for interpretation, um, partly at least because I think the New Testament writers uh, are frequently uh, wanting to, to work uh, against convention or to subvert convention, um, and uh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to overstate the extent to which Paul and the other New Testament writers uh, uh, are consciously uh, applying uh, uh, rhetorical textbook theory or feeling beholden to to uh, the conventional expectations. Uh, you know, the expectations created by convention. You know, often I think you see, you see Paul pushing back against that. That said, I think, uh, sometimes if we don't know the conventions that, uh, the New Testament writers are either presupposing or, or pushing back against, either resisting or applying or assuming, um, if we don't know that, we can, uh, make all kinds of, um, false assumptions really, reading back into, uh, what they say and what they do. Um, anachronistic kind of assumptions uh, often about uh, what an argument means or what a, in this case, what an allegory means. So there's a there's a long tradition of, of perplexity at or um, overexcitement um, in response to it variously. Uh, what Paul says he's doing in Galatians 4, for example, when he says um, that these things uh, are to be taken figuratively or uh, read as an allegory or uh, something along those lines in Galatians 4.24, speaking about Hagar and Sarah. Um, and Ishmael and Isaac. Um, I think uh, part of that um, discord and uh, d- um, polarization of, of interpretations that that comes in, in when we read Galatians four arises from the fact that we're imposing onto Paul's words there assumptions about what allegory means that are that are foreign to first century 
Greco-Roman uh, rhetorical uh, vocabulary and understanding. I think uh, allegory and uh, allegorizing in, in first century usage uh, is not a, a te- not yet a technical term for what it becomes a, a term for in later um, Christian interpretive tradition. You know, it's not yet a term that speaks about a particular form of figural reading that reads the the details of the narrative as ciphers for some kind of set of uh, esoteric, uh, timeless truths. Um, rather, I think, in, in first century usage, allegorio and allegoria um, are used to speak about uh, any kind of uh, figural reading or writing strategy um, in which uh, one thing is made to serve as a, as a figure or an emblem of another, uh, which by no means needs to be read in a kind of a, a timeless, uh, abstracting kind of way. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, in this case, um, if we pull off the straitjacket of anachronistic assumptions about what allegory is, uh, we're free then to attend to what Paul actually does in, in this allegory, as he calls it, and uh, learn from him then not a, not a warrant for whatever kind of uh, allegory we want to make of scripture, but nevertheless, I think an encouragement to a particular mode of figural reading that uh, I think is a key part of the rhetorical power and truth of how New Testament writers appropriate Old Testament narrative. Now, you should know I'm going to ask this question, um, but are you, uh, are you advocating this today? I mean, should we, uh, should we, uh, do similar things to what, uh, to what Paul does, I suppose, uh, as we think about, uh, his, uh, his moment of allegory there? Uh, well, the answer is yes and no, I think. Um, uh, mainly yes. Uh, that is, I, I don't think we can take, legitimately take the, pluck the fruit, the doctrinal fruit, um, from Paul's letters um, uh, and disregard the hermeneutical root from which that 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 fruit grows. You know, if there's a mode of reading scripture that Paul uh, teaches and practices in his letters um, that generates the kinds of readings and conclusions uh, that his lectures, uh, his lectures, his letters um, enjoy upon his readers. Uh, now, there's, there's a there's a, a no within that answer in that. We need to, to recognize as contemporary Christian readers of scripture that we don't have the same, uh, revelatory, uh, function within the work of God in the, you know, divine, divine economy as, as Paul the Apostle does. Uh, and what he's doing in, uh, in Galatians in his reading of Genesis is not just a reading of Genesis. He's also, um, speaking as an apostle of the Lord Jesus. He's, a mouthpiece, as it were, of, of revelation himself, and yet, as a as a reading um, practice, as an argument from scripture for the kind of conclusions that he's urging the Galatians to draw, uh, there is a sense, I think, in Galatians four twenty one to thirty one, or twenty four twenty one to five one in that passage, there is a sense, um, as as Hans Dieter Betz says, that Paul draws the Galatian readers. Uh, uh, into the interpretive endeavor with him, uh, asks them to read scripture with him and, uh, and render judgment themselves. Uh, so he isn't simply, I think, imposing, uh, you know, pulling rank and imposing his apostolic authority on the readers and, and saying to them, you know, I- I've gone into the back room behind the curtain and, um, 
uh, done some charismatic exegesis. Um, don't try this at home, kids. I'm an apostle. Um, uh, but I've come out from behind the curtain now and let me deliver to you the anointed interpretation. No, I think he's, he's asking them to, to sit alongside him at, um, at the desk, as it were, with the, the scriptures open and to read scripture with him there and draw the conclusions that he draws. Now to read scripture, not as a piece of, um, uh, decontextualized, objective, scientific, um, exegesis of the original contextual meaning, uh, but to read scripture in light of the Christ event with him. Um, that's what I think, I think he's, he's doing. Um, asking the Galatians to read scripture with him and implicitly asking us to as well and authorizing us to. So, uh, yeah, I do think that Paul's giving us here, uh, not a, a uniquely charismatic apostolic um, unrepeatable um, declaration uh, about the the significance of scripture for the Christian reader, but modelling a way of reading. Very well put, and I, I would be firmly in your camp, thinking that there is certainly something that we need to be able to replicate here uh, in terms of Paul's uh, method and uh, its fruits. Um, it's certainly the case that you do a nice job pointing out the centrality of the Isaiah fifty four passage, you know, to what Paul's doing as he. Uh, as he uses that perhaps uh, in conjunction with the Christ event as, as, as a lens through which he's approaching Genesis. Uh, and uh, I think it was well done. Um, we're, time is flying by here. Uh, and so I do have a question that I've been asking uh, all of our recent guests on, on script. And I want to make sure I get it in for you because it's such a great question. It's, it's, uh, it would be a shame to miss what you're going to say here. So are you ready for our big question? Uh, far away. Okay, so here it is. What is the one idea in the field of New Testament studies or Christian origins that needs to die? The one idea that needs to die. Um, that, is a, that is a great question. I remember reading a, a, a about a decade ago, reading a, a kind of popular paperback um, book uh, that Don Carson had written where he, in which he pronounced a kind of a, a fatwa against false dichotomies. Um, uh now, I don't think I've got the, the seniority to, to pronounce those kind of judgments myself, but I, I think I'd, I'd want to, I'd want to echo that pronouncement as a kind of wish prayer myself. If, if I was thinking back over this book and after I'd ended up, after I'd finished writing it and, and, uh, it struck me how much of it was really an attempt to push back against uh, a whole series of assumed dichotomies not only within the field of New Testament and in a biblical hermeneutics, but more broadly, I guess, um, uh, dichotomies between, um, in the one Peter chapter, it's about the dichotomy between a, a, a resistant or a conformist stance in relation to the surrounding uh, culture adopted by the New Testament writers. Or in the, uh, in the Galatians chapter, I guess, it's or the Luke chapter, it's the dichotomy between whether scripture should be read backwards or, or forwards. Uh, uh, in the Galatians chapter as well, I think I'd want to push back against the dichotomy between um, uh, the the use of Scripture by the New Testament writers as the view that Scripture is either being used um, as a as a rhetorical power move to pull the wool over the eyes of the original readers, or that Scripture is being used simply to reproduce the uh, original. Um, meaning of the the Old Testament author um, as to provide the the sole um, proof for a doctrinal assertion 
that would otherwise hang suspended in the air without foundation. Sometimes I, 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 I encounter discussions of Paul's use of Old Testament or the New Testament, right? Matthew's use of Old Testament, where the assumption is, is either uh, that the biblical writer is simply doing historical grammatical exegesis of the text um, to provide the warrant for, uh, there's the sole warrant for, a, for a, a, a doctrinal claim, or that he's playing fast and loose and um, being unfaithful to the text. Uh, that's another one of those points, I think, where I'd, I'd, I'd love to see a false dichotomy um, have a stake put through its heart and uh, be put to rest. So, uh, yeah, I guess in general, if I'm allowed to cheat and say um, one answer that can include a whole lot, like, you know, when, you, when the genie asks you for a wish, um, I'd, I'd like to have a, a general, a comprehensive wish that uh, we'd, we'd get over uh, a whole bunch of these kind of false dichotomies, I think. Well, there we have it. Don't uh, don't try any false dichotomies on David Starling. Uh, purely uh, both and, never either or for him. Uh, so I like it. Um now, David, you know, I, I really enjoyed your book. I think it's it's marvelous. It's, it's a it's a wonderful contribution. And I want to compliment in saying I have I don't think there's a single other book quite like it in uh, the field of New <laughs> Testament studies. I pitched it to the uh, to the publishers, uh, two or three publishers actually, before I took it to Baker, and uh, each of the other ones said exactly. They said, look, there's no category for this. There's, I I, you know, I gave them the, the proposal for the book, and they said, look, we really like it. it you know, sounds good, sounds promising, but there's no there's no spot on the shelves. In the bookshop for it, there's no course for which this is the obvious. Yeah, it, 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 we don't know where it fits. And then I pitched it to Baker, and they said, "Yeah, there's, there's, we, we've never seen anything like it, and and that's why we'll go with it." Yeah. So I, I'm very thankful for their courage yes, in going for a book that they hadn't seen anything like before. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's that's the kind of stuff that needs to be published. You know, uh, we we have enough books that are the same. We need some books that are different. And uh, I think I did enjoy the uniqueness of your book, as as again, like I said, it it is truly uh, in its own class. Uh, so, uh, anyway, I don't know that there's any, anything else specific that needs to be said, as this is very much a pro ecclesia sort of book. But I do wonder, as just a way of a final summing up for us, what is it that lies most heavily on your heart for the church with regard to this book? Is there one or two things that you just find yourself thinking, even if my book accomplishes nothing else, I really, really hope that it does accomplish this? Yeah, look, I think the biggest thing would be the, what's the burden of the last chapter, actually, the, uh, the, the chapter on, on Revelation. Um, and that's the image that's that stayed with me and weighed most heavily on my, on my heart since uh, since writing the book. I think that image of um, of scripture as a uh, and the word of God as a word to be kept by God's people. At one level, um, keeping my word uh, as uh, as the language of Revelation puts it uh, uh, seems like such a modest ask of the reader, um, but. Uh, it does seem to me for the readers of Revelation and for Christians in our own day, um, just that baseline, baseline, um, demand of scripture, um, is, is, is not to be taken for granted, um, that God's people be a people who retain his word, who hang on to it, um, who resist the temptation to add to it or subtract from it. Um, now, of course, with, with the keeping of God's word, Goes a host of other things, you know, the, the the reading and the remembering and the believing and the delighting in and the meditating and on the obeying. But the core summons in Revelation, I think, is a summons. Uh, even though we're of little strength, um, I think it's the Philadelphian church, isn't it, um, that is commended 
because they they kept um, my word and the promise of the Lord Jesus to them is that he'll keep them in the time of trial. Uh, I, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult. I don't want to be a prophet of gloom, but for the modern Western post-Christendom church, the both the the pressures on us and the 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 temptations, the seductions of the the culture will be become increasingly a challenge. I think, uh, and I, I I really do long to see a church that um, doesn't let the scriptures kind of leak out of its of its life and devotion. Uh, that we keep reading scripture above all, keep on encountering, reading, meditating on scripture and let the scripture do its work. That's my great hope and prayer for the book. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's very well put, and I think your book does much to empower the church uh, to be apprenticed by Scripture and to keep the Scripture front and center. Uh, so uh, I think it's a very helpful book. Uh, I commend it to all of our listeners, and uh, I want to thank you, David, for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to have you. Thanks, Matt. It's been a delight. Thanks for, uh, thanks for reaching out, and thanks for the chance to talk with you about it. Yes. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. Today we've been speaking with David Starling about his recent release, Hermeneutics as Apprenticeship published by Baker Academic. It's one of the most innovative and helpful books that I've read this year. Farewell till next time. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study.